This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome to the second half of uh, today's symposium. Uh, I'd like to begin the panel and with my introductions of the uh, speakers. Um, our second speaker is Jiyoung Kim, who's a graduate student in the Program of Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford. Her interests include race and performance theory and Asian American literature and theater. And I'm happy to announce that she just passed her oral exams this morning and is holding up quite well, as far as I can tell. Um, our respondent is Professor Karen Shimakawa, who is an associate professor in the Department of Performance Studies and the director of Asian Pacific American Studies in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, and also teaches additional courses at the NYU School of Law. Her interests are Asian American performance and cultural studies, critical race theory, and intercultural performance. Shimakawa is the author of Nat National Objection, The Asian American Body on Stage, and co-editor with Candace Chu of Orientations, Mapping Studies in the Asian Diaspora. This talk is sort of um, a variation on a theme and that it's something that I've kind of repeatedly come back to um, over my time at grad school and with each sort of effort I sort of see different things and um, seem to be, again, uh, writing it with this sort of variation. Um, so, um, an independently produced film acquired by teen-oriented MTV after the 2002 Sundance Film Festival. Better Luck Tomorrow's initial notoriety stemmed from a heated debate that followed its screening at the festival. An audience member's comment that the film was an amoral and negative portrayal of Asian Americans and that the filmmakers had a responsibility to represent their community more positively incited an angry response from film critic Roger Ebert, who commented that the audience member would not have made such a criticism if the filmmaker had been white. In a newspaper article, Eber later, ar later argued, Justin Lin said he senses a moral disconnect in some of today's teenagers and wanted to make a movie about it. His cast was all Asian American because, well, why not? End quote. The article also reports Lin as saying that he felt that the film depicted a reality among teenagers of any race. An underlying assumption in the, in the argument between the audience member and Ebert is that either the film represents a monolithic Asian American community, it is all about race, or it has nothing to do with Asian Americans in particular. It is not at all about race. I would suggest, however, that Better Luck Tomorrow in fact dramatizes the very quandary at the heart of the debate. The tensions between the desire to believe that race does not matter and its persisting material effects and dependence on physical markings of difference. In other words, the film seems involved at multiple levels with asking, what are the implications of performing, in terms of both embodying and representing, at the point where racialization meets assimilation? That is, at the point where the continuing significance and signification of race meets the promise of invisibility and an individual humanity that has been the privilege in this nation of white normativity. To approach this question, I will be employing performance and performativity as analytic models. While I acknowledge the necessity and biases of imposing a particular framework through which to look at the film, I hope to demonstrate Better Luck Tomorrow's own concern with performance as central to constructions of race and nation. Furthermore, I argue that the film may, helps make intelligible the potential limits of performance and performativity as paradigms for thinking about racialization and assimilation, as well as the meaningful movements between them, consequently extending and complicating our understandings of such theorizations. Um, in Judith Butler's influential account of performativity, 
Acts, gestures, enactment, and this is a quote, um, quote, Acts, gestures, enactments generally construed are performative in the sense that the essence or identity that they otherwise purport to express are the fabrications manufactured and sustained through corporeal signs and the discursive means, um, end quote, and just to sort of translate or attempt to translate. Um, she's arguing that these acts, gestures, and enactments that seem to represent one's gender um, actually constitute its reality. Um, lest anyone then assume that people are free to perform gender at will, Butler later emphasizes in uh, Bodies That Matter that performativity is not a singular act, um, for it is always a reiteration of a norm or set of norms, and to the extent that it acquires an act-like status in the present, it conceals or dissimulates the conventions of which it is a repetition. The citation of sedimented norms is compulsory to the extent that it is necessary for the formation of a viable subject, as well as exclusionary in its production of a constitutive outside of abjected bodies and disavowed um, identifications. Um, Butler's con conception of performativity, which is worked through largely in terms of gender and sexuality, does not transfer smoothly into considerations of racialization, and I'll examine some of the reasons why later. For the moment, however, I wish to suggest some useful parallels between this notion of performativity and um, theories of national assimilation. Um, in his study of the discourse of assimilation in the United States in the early 20, 20th century, David Plumbolu stresses that assimilation was constructed as both, as quote, both a psychic and a somatic phenomenon. Not only did it require a particular transformation of mental habits and psychic dispositions, um, it also required the installation of particular intuitions that approximated the American psyche. Um, and so, in addition, there were, um, at the same time, there were sort of these increased meditations, uh, quote, increased meditations on the workings of America upon the foreign body, which will wear away the marks of difference and mold Asia. Um, and so, you know, while being respectful of the particular historical circumstances in which um, these ideas about assimilation emerge, I think that these um, early conceptualizations of assimilation are still resonant in contemporary understandings of Americanization. Uh, for example, in the innumerable accounts of um, generational struggles between a, a more assimilated child and a less assimilated parent. Um, so as a process of approximating national norms, Americanization highlights the performativity of nationality. Um, by citing normative habits, gestures, speech patterns, and other behaviors, immigrants and citizens seem to be expressing a national subjectivity that the reiteration in fact sustains, in fact sustain an effect. Um, as Butler notes, however, such identifications also imply disidentifications, the formation of a constitutive outside of abjected bodies. Um, according to Karen Shimakawa, for U.S. American, quote, for U.S. Americanness to maintain its symbolic coherence, the national abject continually must be both made present and jettisoned, end quote. And she argues that Asian Americanness occupies the, quote, seemingly contradictory yet functionally essential um, position of constituent element and radical other, end quote. Um, so the question that uh, you know, I come to at that point is what happens then when the abject situated unstable at the borders of, of the national imaginary um, begins to cite its norms? Uh, for Butler, the impossibility of perfectly occupying any normative identity and the possibility of repeating conventions inappropriately or excessively um, allow for a space of potential resignifications. Um, she argues, quote, paradoxically, but also with great promise, the subject who is queered in public discourse through homophobic interpolations of various kinds takes up, takes up or cites that very term as a discursive basis for an opposition. This kind of citation will emerge as theatrical to the extent that it mimes and renders hyperbolic the discursive conventions that it also reverses. 
the hyperbolic gesture is crucial to the exposure of the homophobic law um, that can no longer controls the term, control the terms of its own objecting strategies, end quote. Um, and so one way of reading Better Luck Tomorrow in terms of performativity, performativity would be to see it as miming and rendering hyperbolic the conventions of Americanness. Um, from its opening moments, the film emphasizes the character's complete immersion in a mythical and exaggerated American landscape and lifestyle. Um, in addition to an ice cream truck and suburban homes which open the film, um, the camera lingers on basketball courts, a baseball diamond, a fast food restaurant, and high school hallways uh, full of adolescent archetypes, um, the nerds, cheerleaders, and jocks that invariably, invariably populate American teen films and television shows. Um, as the film introduces each of the main characters, um, flashes of photographs give glimpses of their histories and personalities. Um, ben singing in a church choir um, and wearing a Cub Scouts uniform, Derek playing tennis and smiling with George W. Bush, um, Stephanie holding a hunting rifle and posing with her cheerleader's outfit on. So from Cub Scout to cheerleader, the characters are immersed in the lifestyle and traditions often depicted as all-American. As Anne Chang argues, we so often think of stereotypes as about the minority that sometimes we fail to see the norm, that, that the norm is, of course, itself a stereotype, um, a stereotype that has been legitimated, a performative expression par excellence, end quote. So in miming Americanness, Better Luck Tomorrow thus exaggerates and makes legible the disguised theatricality of the performative norm, revealing it to be a collection of stereotypes. Furthermore, the film also portrays racial stereotypes in a similarly uh, hyperbolic fashion, which could be read as taking up and my, as a taking up and miming of racist interpolations. Um, we see Ben as the model minority typing out application after application to prestigious colleges, studying diligently for the SATs, and participating in numerous uh, extracurricular activities. Rather than showing these activities naturally as simply part of Ben's daily life and the background to the action, the film piles them on top of each other early in the film in an excessive reiteration and parody of the model minority myth. When Ben and his friends begin citing the figure of the Asian gangster, um, their brandishing of guns and hypermasculine poses suggests a citational and theatrical nature of the stereotype. Yet, isn't, yet it is in trying to read these performances of racial stereotypes in terms of performativity that its limits as a model for thinking about racialization become evident. Um, in terms of the model minority, while the myth is performative in the sense that it reiterates race um, even while claiming that, sorry, in terms of the model minority, while the myth is performative in the sense that it reiterates race even while claiming that race does not matter, um, the stereotype itself renders hyperbolic the assimilation of Asian Americans, theatricalizing what is described as a movement into normativity. Um, a recent example, I think, will illuminate this. Um, there was an article in the, New York, sorry, in the Wall Street Journal entitled The New White Flight, um, which describes the movement of white students out of schools with large Asian American populations, uh, mostly actually here in Northern California, ostensibly because of, their in, of the Asian American students' intensive, intense competitiveness and focus on math and science over the, over the liberal arts. Um, in some of the white and Asian American parents' and students' accounts, Asian Americans are not just successful in school, but excessively, partially, and inappropriately so. Meanwhile, the white student described at the end of the article moves to a school with lower test scores where, and this is a direct quote, Friday night football is a tradition with big halftime shows and usually 1,000 people packing the stands, end quote. Um, in a strange or perhaps not so strange conflation of a smaller population of Asian American students uh, with a retention of hardy American traditions. 
um, in such manifestations of the model minority myth, the very movement from the performativity of nation to its hyperbolic and improper performances maintains rather than questions the racial boundaries of the nation. The racialized subject can never be American, but can only mimic Americanness, performing it badly, partially, or so well that the affectedness of the performance becomes apparent. Um, the theory of performativity, therefore, cannot sufficiently account for the mechanisms of racialization in which normative citations are uneasily reiterated by visibly marked bodies. Um, in addition, the racial landscape offers multiple identificatory um, possibilities. Um, and for those who have seen the film, you can think about um, Virgil, who is actually uh, in the car. He was the um, teenager who's talking the most. Um, consider Virgil's um, citations of stereotypes of black uh, hypermasculinity. Um, and, uh, and so um, I think another question that raises is whether or not such reiterations um, do, sorry, lost my place. Um, okay, so the, the racial landscape offers multi multiple identificatory possibilities. Um, and whether or not such reiterations do the identity um, depends on a negotiation, however unconscious or naturalized, between the performer and his or her audience. In other words, although Butler cautions against thinking of gender as theatrical performance because it assumes the agency of a subject performing gender as an actor would perform, an act, uh, perform a character, a conception of racial performance that emphasizes the constraining yet productive dynamic between performer and spectator offers a necessary complication to formulations of racial performativity. Um, according to Harry Elam, Quote, from the arrival of the first African slaves on American soil, the discourse on race, the definitions and meanings of blackness have been intricately linked to issues of theater and performance. Definitions of race, like the processes of theater, fundamentally depend on the relationship between seen and unseen, between the visibly marked and unmarked, between the real and the illusionary. Um, thus, if theories of performativity insist that identities are real only because they are done, concepts of performance add that bodies enact certain roles or narratives because of a way of seeing that is theatrical. The idea of doing race at all is highly contextual and depend, depend, dependent on how racially marked and unmarked parties see and interpret those markings. For Butler, there's nothing outside of conventional citations, no subject possible without reiterations of norms edged by the abject. Yet an immigrant, for example, with the same um, can be with the same behaviors, um, citing norms or doing race, depending on where she or he is performing and in front of uh, whom she, she or he is performing. In other words, the acts that, in terms of performativity, seem to effect racial difference do not do race until they are framed as racial, attached to physical traits, and narrated as different. Um, racialization thus depends on the theatricalization of mundane performatives cited in a way that makes race, race different, racial difference real. Um, thus, we need to think of racialization in terms of both performativity and performance, and in terms of reiter reiterated acts and reiterated acts of seeing. The association of race with performance hardly needs to be unearthed in Better Luck Tomorrow, as the film repeatedly foregrounds the way in which racialization theatricalizes, the, uh, theatricalizes bodies, framing and narrativizing them, but also leaving them vulnerable to reframing and re-narrativizing in the encounters between different performers and audiences. Uh, for example, when Ben comes and uh, makes it into the high school basketball team, Derek, um, the editor of the high school newspaper, and these are actually both characters, um, you know, the group at the center of um, the film. So Derek asks um, Ben, how do you feel about being the token Asian on the team? Although the question bewilders and angers Ben, Derek subsequently writes an inflammatory story which incites students to protest Ben's bench warmer status and eventually leads to his withdrawal from the team. 
Claiming that the racialization of Ben's body begins with the article would ignore the larger social forces from which ideas of tokenism emerge. But the story nevertheless seems to, nevertheless seems to suggest um, that the article activates Ben's awareness of the racialization of his body. Um, I would suggest that his rec recognition of the ease with which the racialized body can take on certain roles, as well as his sense of a gap between his perception of reality and the way his body is seen and marked by others, are necessary preludes to his later performance as the Yellow Peril. Um, after Derek pulls out a gun at, at a party, um, which is what you see, um, Derek, Ben, and their friends Virgil and Han develop a reputation as Asian gangsters. In his voiceover, Ben explains, we had the run of the place. Rumors about us came and went fast and furious. One had us linked to some Chinese mafia. It was fine with us because it just put more fear into everybody. Yet even as Ben claims a kind of agency over their performances, the film suggests the constraints imposed by the necessary negotiation with an audience who must affirm their performance. Enjoying their, their new wealth and reputation as a Chinese mafia, the group hires a white stripper for one of their parties. At the end of the night, as they pay her, she asks, so what are you guys? Although her question suggests that she sees them as impressive Asian gangsters, when Virgil tells her that they're a club, she responds, oh, like a math club or something? The expression of displeasure on Derek's face indicates that the stripper misinterpre misinterpreted their performance, associating them with the model minority and not the tough, hyper-masculine gangsters they were playing. If Ben and his friends want to play at racial stereotypes, however, they must also accept the highly contextual and audience-dependent nature of performances. While they may try to strategically reframe and redeploy their racialized bodies, they can never fully control the way um, in which their race will be narrativized. Um, nevertheless, even while acknowledging the constraints to agency imposed by an audience, the film suggests that thinking of race in terms of performance poses the same potential risk as thinking of gender in terms of performance. That is, the temptation to assume a discrete boundary between, a racial, between racial performance and a real self. And a real self. Um, as he and his friends become more invested in their performance as a Chinese mafia, Ben recounts, I soon learned along with image came maintenance. I needed something to expand my days. It's literally a full-time job just to make people believe who you're supposed to be. While Ben still implies a distinction between who he's supposed to be and who he actually is, when he wakes up one morning with a bloody nose from taking too many drugs, we are reminded of his earlier comment while memorizing words for the SATs that, quote, they say if you repeat something enough times, it becomes a part of you. In his repeated enactments of the stereotype of the Asian gangster, Ben is unable to maintain a sense of a certainty in his self separate from the roles he performs. To the extent that he must literally embody his role and others treat the role as real, um, a point to which I will return, Ben is what he thinks he is only playing. Um, the film, however, resists the simple collapsing of the distinction between being and performing, um, both in the performative and theatrical sense. Instead, it highlights the very movements between a presumed real um, invisible performatives, so basically the movements between a presumed real um, invisible performatives and theatricalized performances, thus staging the spectator's impulse to differentiate between them and their acceptance of their permeability and simultaneity. Um, and so I want to recall um, the second clip that I showed, um, which was when uh, the character's name is Steve. He wants to buy a gun from these characters, and so he goes into the garage. But basically what they want to do is just beat him up. Um, and so in that scene, and I hope I showed enough that this became evident, the film moves between an explicitly theatrical and realistic style emphasized by the positioning of the camera, which from a distance highlights the dramatic solo lighting of the more explicitly theatrical moments, 
um, but then in close-ups of the voice struggles, take spectators into the chaos and violence. Um, and I sort of cut it off before you could sort of see it in its you know, um, wonderful violence. Um, but, I mean, if you w sort of watch further in the film, like, it gets really gruesome, and, like, it, the camera really just sort of goes in there um, and shows things that you really don't want to see. Um, thus, I cut it off. Um, and so the scene um, so it moves from this sort of dramatic, sort of theatrical, um, staged um, style to that sort of visceral style, which at least um, for me and I think for a lot of other people, um, really evoked a, a very physical response. Um, although it is possible to make the case that the scene undermines or inten intensifies um, spectators' experience of violence through its juxt juxtaposition with the blatantly theatrical, neither claim would deny that such stylistic shifts encourage continual adjustments in spectatorial expectation, perspective, and assumptions without negating the differences between the dynamics they establish between film and audience or destroying our, our faith in the film's narrative realism. Um, and what I mean by that is we assume, you know, despite these sort of um, different styles, that the characters must clean up the blood. They have to get rid of so Steve ends up dying, but um, the characters must clean up the blood, they have to get rid of the body, um, and they have to contend with the questions um, once people begin to miss the victim. Um, in Between Theater and Anthropology, uh, Richard Schechner argues, this uh, quote, the spectators do not willingly suspend disbelief. They believe and disbelieve at the same time. This is theater's chief delight. The show is real and not real at the same time. Although Schechner is referring here to specific experiences of live theater, his statements seem applicable, perhaps with qualifications, to other forms of performance, um, and particularly suitable for thinking not only about the scene, but also about the film's engagement with racialization. In its, continuing, in its continual destabilization of filmic mediation and spectatorial positioning, the scene does not ask the audience to suspend belief so much as it plays on the capacity for rapid configurations of belief and disbelief, our sense of reality and theatricality. And so I wanted to end by returning to the first scene that I showed, um, which, you know, is, so they're in the car and uh, Virgil's sort of going off and how exciting it was. Um, and then you see another car coming up with other Asian gangsters. Um, so this scene establishes a contrast between Ben and his friends and those in the car that drives up next to them, creating both a mirror and barrier between the two groups. My question is, and this is actually for all of you, um, to what extent do those in the other car appear to be more real as gangsters than the main characters of Better Luck Tomorrow? Um, from the narrative, we know that Ben and his friends are a group of suburban, mostly high-achieving high school students. Their hyper-masculine displays and the strippers' guess that they're part of a math club seem to highlight a gap between performance and reality. The scene might then point out the dangers of conflating the performance of these relatively privileged teenagers with the experiences of those who live in conditions of daily violence and material poverty, experiences that the boys cite, but from which they are insulated by the gates of the, suburb of the suburban community that opened the film. Yet the assumption that the other gangsters are more real depends on reading their performance as more accurately reflecting um, their actual living conditions. The depiction of these gangsters in the other car, however, um, is also hyperbolic. Consider the exaggerated flashing of the gun and the blasting of music. Um, the reality seems within the context of the film less confirmed by material fact and more affirmed by the fear evident in the expression in, on Ben and his friends, um, their faces and behaviors reflecting back the authenticity of their performance. And uh, just to conclude, um, reading the appearance of these doppelgangers, however, poses a particular problem that becomes evident in Manola, uh, Manola Dar Dargis's review of the film. 
Um, and she's a film critic for the LA Times, and I think now for the New York Times. But when she wrote this, um, she was working for the LA Times. Describing the scene, she writes, quote, without warning, the beats floating off the car stereo are drowned out by a louder, more insistent rhythm as a car carrying four Latino gangbangers slides next to the Mustang, end quote. Reading this review, I was immediately struck not by the, the racialization of the gangbangers, but the discrepancy between our perceptions of their race, as I had read their bodies as Asian. And uh, similarly, um, a friend had told me that he went to see this movie with a friend who I think uh, was a Latina, and she had sort of come away from the film kind of offended by the, this representation um, of Latino gangsters. Um, what I want to suggest from this example is not only that race is contextual and unstable, despite its claims on visible corporeal markings, but also that our understandings of what is real or illusory is mediated through racializations, as much as racializations depend on those movements between, as I mentioned above, a presumed real, naturalized performative, and theatrical performance. The disturbed audience member at Stundance might ask the filmmakers why they portrayed Latinos so negatively. Um, a film critic could respond that they were just portraying gangbangers, not a particular race. Um, the actors who played these parts might claim that they're not even Latino. Yet all would still be professing what I might describe as a strange atheistic faith in race, the coexistence of belief and disbelief, um, described by Schechner as the theatrical experience. Thank you. Probably a lot of people out there have things to say. So my comments are going to be somewhat brief. Um, I'll try to make some connections and raise a few questions. Um, so, so we get to move today from uh, pornography to Power Rangers, which I think is an interesting um, transition, it's an interesting sequencing of the day. Um, I'm actually going to start with Julian's paper and then work backwards into, into um, Peter's. Um, so I think I want to start with... Um, her question, which I think is a really important one in the beginning of her paper, where she says, what are the implications of performing in terms of both, both embodying and representing at the point where racialization meets assimilation? And it's that, kind, that point that interests me, too, that is the point where embodiment bumps up against or crosses over to representation or vice versa. Um, I think it's a crucial question for us all to, throughout um, this entire um, symposium, but especially here where, as um, Gion, um points out, the film is in one sense squarely about um, trying to answer that question with respect to performances, particularly of Asian American masculinity. Um, and I'm sort of going to hammer masculinity because femininity, Asian American feminine performance is kind of complicated in the film. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I really appreciate her reading of the ways in which the film depicts um, the male characters as potentially trapped between um, various stereotypes. That is, on the one hand, the model minority. On the other hand, the gangster. Um, but I'm left with one question. That is, to what extent does the film portray the boys as remaining caught within the trap that is between the two pole, the poles of those two stereotypes? Um, does it offer a way out, or whether or not the film is, films are supposed to offer a way out of that trap, or does it simply redecorate the trap itself? Um, and that, I, I don't, that's not a loaded question. It's actually a really open question, because it's one that I'm constantly debating with my, my students. Um, so I'm drawn um, to Gian's re uh, reference, um, I'm on page nine, but you don't know that, to the <laughs> movement between, um, in, uh, the movement between, uh, where she cites at first, she says, between a presumed real um, and performance and, th and theatricality. Um, 
And as David knows, I'm lately sort of preoccupied with the idea of the movement between. And so, of course, I sort of honed in on, on that phrase. Um, that is the move between uh, fixed points of legibility um, as a possible fleeting moment of possibility or contingency. And here, um, as David knows, I'm ripping, riffing off of um, Brian Masumi's um, assertion of um, movement and affect as a way to think about subjectivity that is not doomed to simply a reduction to static identity. And I'm also riffing off of Ray Chow's genealogy of the term stereotype as coming from stereotypy um, as a way to refocus on the process or the project of reproduction of norms rather than um, resigning oneself to the product of that of um, normalization. And to really you know, sort of start the critique there at the, the moment, that kind of process-oriented critique. So with that in mind, I want to put, um, I want to posit a few moments in the film, some of which actually um, were shown to us, thank you, and yet not all of them were shown, which I also appreciate, um, to think about the possibility of seeing um, the film as, as kind of trying to wrestle with this question of the movement between, which I think is where you're getting with the paper anyway. So the first is actually um, the, the first scene that um, Jian showed us, which, um, most of us, I think, have probably seen the film, so you, you don't need the background. But um, I think it's important that it follows the first scene of really graphic violence, right? That um, the boys are at a party where not only is the gun pulled, and that's sort of how they're able to win this fight with these jocks, but that it's a pretty serious beating that they're then able to um, enact on the, the jock because he's, he's cowed by the gun. Um, so I actually, that scene that she showed is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, not just for the ambivalence of what happens with the, the second gangster car, um, but for Virgil's monologue. Because I think it's a really interesting and kind of unstable ambivalent move, uh, moment. Movement is the Freudian slip, because I want to see it as that possibility, that a moment where we're seeing a little bit of that, that movement between. Um, it's not only... Um, and if you haven't seen the film, it's, it's worth renting just to see that scene. I actually think it's a terrific um, performance. Um, that, so when we see Virgil's monologue, it's not only sort of, what we're not seeing is not only a kind of adolescent adrenaline overload um, or a sense of emotional fragility. Um, I, I don't know if you caught it in between the cuts back and forth between the, the other the scene inside their car and them looking at the other car. Um, he ends, he's, he's you know, really excited and he's saying that was so great, that was fantastic, and it ends by saying something like, my mom and dad are gonna kill me if they find out, right? And he's, and he's weeping by the end of it. Um, so um, it's not only a performance of um, emotional fragility, but also I wanna try to read that scene as um, watching a subject to be formed. Um, that is um, the sort of pre-subject who finds himself momentarily somehow off the subject position grid. He's somewhere between those poles, between the model minoritarian, you know, good son of filial piety and this possible new identification as a gangster. And he's, he's literally sort of unlegible to us and to himself in this kind of interesting way. Um, which is, and, and it never really resolves itself, I think, which, is, I, which I like about the film. Um, another moment I, um, of that kind of movement between that I want to um, point us out to is the stripper and the, the math club joke, because what's, what, if, unless, and I did see this movie not that long ago, but I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly, that um, 
the kind of joke within the joke is they're not there for the math club, they're there for like the debate club or something else, right? So they, they actually, there is this way in which um, the kind of um, ridiculousness of her reading of them as members of the math club is not so ridiculous after all. So there's a kind of weird ambivalent moment there too, which is not played out for you. You only think about that later, you know, if you think, well, actually they were there for some kind of honor roll club. Um, and then the, the third movement, um, moment of movement is um, actually, it's not really a particular moment in the film, um, but it's a kind of stylistic thing that um, the director does in a few of these scenes, like the one we saw in the car and the one that you cut off, that is he cuts between different scenes in sort of interesting and useful ways. And I want to try to see that as a kind of a possible way of cinematically enacting this movement between. So for instance, you see Virgil crying in the car while you see this performance of, of these other um, ambiguously racialized gangsters. And there's this weird kind of inside outside, um, two very distinct kind of narratives going on at the same time that he's trying to bring you to bring together. And the other one is after the murder takes place. We just ruined the movie for anybody who didn't see it. But um, after the movie takes place, uh, after the murder takes place, um, there's a cut between the boys at a party and the boys cleaning up the murder. And, and it's not told in, in linear time. So the, I think there's a, another way in which you're sort of seeing them, you're seeing them kind of in this sort of real way, which is maybe problematic in the cleaning up of the murder, and then you're seeing them kind of performing, going back, trying to muster up a kind of model minority performance at the New Year's Eve party after they've cleaned up the body. Um, so I think maybe you know, there's some kind of cinematic movement between that he's trying to um, enact. Um, so I guess uh, I actually have some questions for you at the end, which are linked to my questions for Peter. So, um, but my. Um, the last thing I would say about the about um, Jan's reading of Better Luck Tomorrow is that um, one of the things I really appreciate it about it is, um, or actually, I, I want to leave this as a question with you, which is, I started by saying, is there a way out of the trap? Is there a way in which the movie is pointing to some way out of the trap? And I'm struck by the ending, which is um, the the main boy driving off with the only girl <laughs> in the movie. Um, and um, thinking about it in terms of your argument about the resedimentation of norms, and resedimentation is a sort of opportune um, choice of words there because they end up, I just, I'm just, we've already ruined the end of the movie for those of you who haven't seen it, but they end up by, they buried the body, right? So it's the framing narrative is about, is, is, the, is the, the, the location of, this, of the body in somebody's backyard. And so there's a literal kind of resedimentation with a difference that has happened. And I'm wondering if, if how we are to read that, because on the one sense they're kind of driving off as model minoritarians. On the other hand, maybe there's something. It is a sediment, a, a different kind of sedimentation that's happening, and I'm, I leave that to you. Um, my comments for um, um, for Peter are slightly different, which are um, in part because I, he brings us really usefully, I think, to these questions of production and consumption, which are so important and, and so hard to think about. Um, um, for people who don't like to do quantitative research. Um, so here it's useful to come back to Julian's caution to pay attention not only to reiterated acts of seeing, uh, not, not only to reiterated acts of being, but also to reiterated acts of seeing. Actually, I have more, but I'm going to stop there because I think other people have questions too. So, yeah. Maybe you both like to respond to Karen's commentary. I guess one thing that I wanted to um, think about was what um, Karen was talking about in terms of the end of the film and whether or not, uh, and to what extent uh, does the film suggest um, 
that the boys remain sort of caught up in reiterating these roles, um, you know, whether it's white normativity or um, sort of hyperbolized um, stereotypes. And um, in my initial reading of the film, and just to describe it quickly, um, I think Karen already did this, but to kind of point out the features that I think are important. Um, so they've buried the body, and there's sort of some questions about where he is, especially from his um, girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, who is the only female lead in the, in the um, story. Um, and so at the end of the film, you sort of, um, Virgil's tried to, or he, he's tried to commit suicide. Um, so he's one of the boys. Um, I think Derek is still sort of like, oh, we can't tell anybody, we can't confess. Um, and then Ben is sort of, you know, seems to be somewhat ambivalent about whether or not he should go to the police or um, keep it a secret um, because he can go to a really great college um, if he keeps it a secret. Um, and there are two scenes at the very end of the film, and one is, I mean, throughout the film you see these shots of Ben playing basketball, and it's just like, you know, very regular. Um, but at the end, but in that sort of the second to last scene, he's standing there with um, holding a basketball, and he's not really doing anything. He's like standing completely still, and then the camera moves around him. And then the last scene of the film is one in which he's sort of walking um, back with a basketball, and uh, Stephanie, the, the girlfriend figure, um, drives, you know, next to him in her BMW, and um, he sort of gets in, and they drive off into the distance. Um, and so my initial reading, you know, I thought about the ways in which the scene of the basketball court really sort of um, forestalls any kind of thinking about there being reiter possibilities for reiterative um, practices sort of outside these roles, whether they're norms or stereotypes. That, like Ben is completely still, like that he can't even continue on with the narrative because he has, at that point, he's sort of exhausted the yellow peril and he, you know, it's not really certain that he can be the moral minority anymore. Um, and so the family, uh, sorry, the uh, camera keeps moving around him, but he himself is unable to um, continue as a character or as a subject within this <coughs> film. Um, and I think what the last scene suggests, though, is that he does, he takes up another role, right, which is like the hero who drives off into the um, sunset. And I think Though with a difference, right, that he's not, this is not a happy ending, that there is a buried body. And I think it asks the question, to what extent does him taking up that leading, you know, you know, romantic man role at the end, the sort of the end of all Westerns um, to a certain extent, um, to what extent does that depend on the fact that they've just buried this, this body and to the kind of erasures and uh, forgetting that is necessitated um, by that movement? But this is one reading. How about some questions from the floor? Wow. 
Poetry, you have to answer this, because we talked about this all morning in her. So do you mean, what's the difference between performativity and dramatization, or? I think I understand how I think of it. What I'm interested in is then how, I guess the question, two questions. A, do you feel that the movie must, or that production, reading a movie is to figure out whether it does offer a mode, a way out, or a re-inscription? And if you do, then what is the relationship between dramatization and performance? Okay, well I think, to a certain extent, I would agree with your reading in that, you know, I mean, the film is titled sort of Better Luck Tomorrow. I feel like it sort of, it doesn't give us that sort of, any sort of solution out of it. Right, well, and also that there is this question at the end of the film as to what he will do, and it's never really answered, that there's this sort of suspension of any sort of solution. It sort of, you know, passes the buck in a sense, you know, to the viewer to figure out if there is some sort of solution or answer. So I'm not sure if I'm understanding. So I don't know if answering no means that I don't have to answer the second question, but just to attempt an answer to that. I think, you know, in terms of performativity, the way in which, I guess, Butler in particular conceptualizes it, performativity is very hard to sort of see in a way. She thinks of it as sort of these reiterated citations of norms that are not sort of evident as citations, and that, you know, how we see a subject or how even we become subjects are, you know, completely dependent on these citations. And so that for her, when she thinks, when we see a gender or maybe race as like this theatrical act, that kind of presence and that kind of the sense of agency behind, okay, well, you know, as a woman I'm dressing in this particular way, in fact, hides the fact that I am, that I am, or anybody else is in fact citing those sort of norms and that relationship between my citations and the way in which I come into subjectivity. And so when I think about something, when I turn to something like Better Luck Tomorrow and try to think about performativity, in some sense I'm trying to make visible what is supposed to be invisible or not thought of. And I think, and I use this example during my oral talk as well, Ellen Diamond talks about one of the usefulnesses of performances as a sort of framed theatrical event is that it makes, you can employ it to make certain aspects of performativity visible, or maybe not visible, but at least discussable, that you can sort of take out its parts or kind of try to, at least attempt to investigate what sort of in our daily lives that we, that goes sort of unframed. And so, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, I guess it'd be easier for me to answer since sexuality is a lot more sort of explicit in Better Luck Tomorrow. And I'm not sure if you've seen the film, but that there are a lot of scenes of hyper-hyper masculinity that the boys, you know, they hire strippers and prostitutes. 
there's there's always some sort of like you know joke about sex, um, and I think what's interesting about what the film does is that um, it it does set it up. It's kind of strange that there aren't very many really present like black bodies in the film, um, but to the extent that it sets up hypermasculinity as citations of blackness, actually, um, as a kind of citations of black stereotypes. Um, for example, Virgil, who the film really constructs as the one who's sort of the least secure in his masculinity, um, that you know he's I think he calls his friends like homies or like nigger, and like he sort of. And if you go to, okay, so if you go to the Better Luck to Her website, um, I think, I'm not sure if it's still there, but there's, there used to be a link where you could see each of the characters' websites, like to sort of imagine that, you know, these are real people. And if you go to Virgil's website, that there are sort of like these awful stereotypes of like um, blackness present in his website. And um, so I think, you know, if the film is about this sort of citationality, um, what happens within this multiracial landscape of the US is that, um, black masculinity becomes citable for uh, Virgil. But again, it's sort of, you know, it gets complicated in terms of how do we then see those citations? Um, to what extent do we see them as very inappropriate or, you know, sort of ridiculous performances of masculinity? Um. I did want to make sure that everybody knows that we're going to have screenings by Ruth Ozeki and Daryl Hamamoto and Celine Perenas tomorrow. One o'clock at the Wallenberg Amphitheater, uh, and they'll be showing parts of their films and uh, dialoguing with us. So I hope that you can all come, bring a friend. Uh, thank you very much for coming today, and please join me with, again, thanking the panelists. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.